soul. We believe you are God and in control. Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Bram, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Let the nations be glad, all his saints rejoice. And let the people sing praises their So we pick it up in verse 14. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they derided him, that is Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law, that is of the Old Testament, and the prophets were until John, that would be John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle or swish of the brush of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, designed to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And he being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great goal fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Very powerful passage of scripture. And the fact that it's in a red letter Bible read, we consider just the context that Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. These are the eternal words of Jesus preserved for us by the Holy Spirit and his word that give us insight on the other side of time, space, and matter. That alone is very profound and just draws our attention to it for great consideration for principles and things to think about in our life, the lives of people we love and care about, and the things that God wants to do in our life and is doing in our lives. Now, as we start out this text, we see, first of all, the Pharisees were lovers of money. So the narrative by the Holy Spirit makes clear that, that, that this parable is not even really a parable. It's not, we're not told it's a parable. And by the way, if it is a parable, it's the only one where there's someone that's given a name in the parable. 
Lazarus. It is possible and it has been suggested that this is a real person with a real rich man who had already lived their lives and stepped into eternity and Jesus has used them as a reference point. Otherwise, it certainly could be a parable, but it's unusual for us because it, we're not told it's a parable and it sounds like the narrative of real lives that were lived in time, space, and matter and what happened with them on the other side of eternity. We are told the Pharisees were lovers of money and on the previous comments that Jesus said that you can't serve two masters, you'll love one and hate the other, that they derided him over that. And we are told that the audience of this message that Jesus gives here is directed at the Pharisees. He said to them, now we like to draw those distinctions when we're studying God's word. Is he talking to the multitudes? Is he addressing his disciples? Is he talking to Peter? Is he talking to the apostles or disciples at large? This is really important when we get the context. Is he talking to the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Herodians? Who is Jesus talking to? It gives us context. He's talking to the Pharisees who are lovers of money. It is quite clear that they serve mammon as their God. They serve wealth. The narrative makes that clear. We don't have to speculate, speculate like, well, you know, maybe they're good guys and they're religious people and they, you know, they want to live affluently or whatever. And, you know, they still love God. Like we might think about some people in America. We're told that they love money. And the first commandment is you have no other gods before the Lord of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is Lord of all or is not Lord at all. And in the Old Testament, with the moral law of the Ten Commandments, you'll have no other gods before me. And it's well noted that what we live for becomes our God. That's what we bow down to, our driving passion and force. We're wired that way by God, our creator, to be driven with a purpose of living. And we don't need to wonder who someone's God is. All you have to do is look what they're living for. And whether it's the person in the mirror they worship or mammon or titles and power, prestige and these sorts of things, the lust of the flesh, or even religious pride. It, it, there's all kinds of gods, but there's only one God, the true and living God. And we know from the context of the previous passage, plus what's said here, these guys cannot serve God and mammon, and yet we're told they love money. These guys are not right with God. They're religious leaders, and they claim to know God. They claim to represent God. They claim to believe the entire Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms but they're not right with God. And we're, that's all made for a scripture, interpreting scripture from within the text. Now, another thing that we need to draw our attention to as a whole on this passage is that the talking about Father Abraham, the context of the passage isn't wealth or poverty or any virtue in wealth or poverty. We need to understand that. Because if that were true, then Abraham's not the good guy. But Abraham's the good guy. Abraham is what? He's the father of faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness back in Genesis. When God promised to give him a nation through his offspring when his wife was barren, he believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. We know that. We know that Abraham was blessed. He had many possessions. He had over 300 employees when he went to go rescue Lot, his nephew. We're told by the scriptures he was a very wealthy man, and yet he's a man of faith. We're told in Hebrews 11 that although he had all these possessions, even, well, we're told in Hebrews 11 that he looked for the city which had foundation, his builder and maker is God. He never built himself a house in time, space, and matter. He lived in a tent. 
and his offspring were tent dwellers because he looked for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. His heart was in heaven. It influenced his wife. She counted God faithful who promised the offspring of Isaac laughter, meaning laughter Isaac. His, sons are, his son Isaac is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. His grandson Jacob is in the hall of faith. And his great-grandson Joseph of the 12 tribes of Israel is also in the hall of faith. It's not the wealth that's the issue. It's the heart. It's faith. It's dependency upon the Lord. It's humility. It's trusting in the Lord. Oh, it's pride or self-confidence and trusting in self. It's about eternal things or temporal things. And I also point out about Lot, excuse me, Abraham with Lot, his nephew, when they had so much wealth that there wasn't enough land to sustain their wealth. And the herdsmen were quarreling with the flocks that Abraham who the promise has been made to him that the land would be for him and for his offspring, he let Lot go first. He wasn't concerned about maintaining the supply line for his wealth, the cattle, the offspring, but he put others first, even in dispute over wealth and who, could, who had the right. And of course, Lot had been living well off the benefits of being associated with Abraham. And Abraham said, Lot, you go where you want to go and wherever you go, I'll go the other way. So we see that Abraham's wealth didn't control him His faith in God controlled him. And after he let Lot choose the best land, because Lot looked and saw that Sodom was green and fertile, and it was by the eye the most likely place to go if you're driven by temporal wealth and what would be beneficial to him and his assets. And Lot chose that. But it was after that that God said to Abraham, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. It's all yours. It was all his. And even then, he never built a house. He didn't have to own time, space, and matter because God promised him things for all eternity. Of course, the only time he ever did buy property was to bury his wife, Sarah. The first introduction of tears in the Bible with the death of a spouse. And we see him buying property to properly uh, bury his wife in an honorable way. The issue is not about wealth, having money or not having money. It's about Does the money own us or do do we own it? We know in the Bible that all things that we have are of the Lord and by the Lord and from the Lord. Just the the opportunity to live in America and have the type of practical wealth we have, particularly even living in Orange County, it's just unbelievable, the wealth that we have. It's an amazing nation. You know, talking with my son Luke last night, he's a shift lead at Starbucks and he he usually has the last shift over here at South Coast Plaza. And there's a way they do everything where they seal the fruit that night where everything's cleaned and proper and reloaded for the early morning fruit and just the volume it's out at, uh, over here at South Coast Plaza. And they, all that food, of course, is dated, as you know, and Starbucks is in being the restaurant business. And I've been in the restaurant business, so you've worked in the restaurant business. Understand this. You have to be really careful with your food, right? You cannot poison people with bad food. And so Starbucks, though, the way they work things, they want to give it all away and be benevolent. So the last thing they do every night is determine which food is going to the food bank. Like, how many countries do that? Like, how many countries? Can you think, can you picture that in like, you know, like Burma or Bangladesh now or whatever? You know, like, can you picture that like in, in the foothills of Vietnam? Can you picture that in uh, Nicaragua? Like, this is a great nation, and we have great wealth. And how many countries, when you're homeless, can you go find shelter 
and dig through trash that that food is better than most countries' straight-up food that they get every day. The average wage in the, around the world is $2.50 a day. People work for $2.50 a day, average wage, to have bread and water and some kind of shelter. We are so blessed in this country. And as I've been watching uh, volumes of Billy Graham's uh, crusades, 60s, 70s, 80s, very fascinating to me, and certain ones I've been listening to over and over, it's amazing to me how often Billy preached about the wealth of America and the opportunities of this nation to, see, you can't force us. See, that's where socialism doesn't work. There's no socialism or communism in the Bible, in the book of Acts. It's free will and choice. It's the heart. In the early church there in Acts, people gave and shared one another and no one lacked because people chose to. When they went to build the tabernacle in the Old Testament, there was more than enough, and Moses had to turn the people away because they chose to. God gives us choice. That's the challenge with expanding government of redistribution of wealth as it's imposed and eliminates choice. That's the battle of the ages uh, in human government. But Billy Graham mentioned time and time again the opportunities of our nation to bless others. And we see that this nation has been a blessing nation to the world. You know, there's countries that are bent on our destruction. There are governments bent on our destruction that we've been giving millions and millions of dollars a year to feed their poor. What a great nation, huh? Can I get an amen? What a great nation to be American citizens that our enemies hate us. They vow to destroy us and vow to destroy our allies. And yet we give them tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of food aid every year. That is so incredible when you think about it. What nations have been like that? Did Rome do that? Did Napoleon do that? Did the Kaiser do that? Did the British Empire do that? Did Genghis Khan do that when he conquered Europe? Man, we are, we're a, we are so blessed to call ourselves citizens of the United States if you're a U.S. citizen. And as Billy Graham would say, to whom much is given, much is required. And it's not a forceful thing. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. You know, everything you have is from the Lord. The thing we take for granted most is our health. That's from the Lord. Good health is from the Lord. What happens with bad health? We tend to seek the Lord with urgency. What happens when we get laid off? We're pressed into urgency with the Lord more than we might have been. We prefer ease, but God prefers faith, for we're called to live by faith, not in ease. And the Bible actually says, woe to, the, woe to those who are in comfort. And it's a tricky thing, right? We want to have enough, enough wealth to end our life in peace. But we don't want to die with too much wealth, right? Like, you know, you kind of want to give it away, right? That's what rich people do. With or without the Lord, they set up, you know, trust funds and all these different things to benefit down the road, grants and that kind of stuff. One thing is for sure, whether we're Abraham, Lazarus, or the rich man, or the Pharisees, one thing is for sure, we're all going to die and we can't take it with us. And we harmonize that with what Jesus said, uh, that if we store up our treasures in heaven, that's where our heart will be, where thieving moth cannot destroy. So with that overview of this passage, a couple key points. There in verse 15, Jesus said something very profound. He said that, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. 
In the context of this passage, Jesus warns, actually reproves them for being self-justified. We can deceive ourselves. Now, the context is wealth, but we can deceive ourselves. We can have an appearance of being right with God when we look in the mirror, and we can have an appearance where we feel like, you know, we're serving the Lord. We're doing good things for the Lord. We go to church. We serve. Uh, we do these different things. And, and sometimes we, because we do that, we set up a legal relationship with God. We feel like, hey, I do this for God, and God's obligated to me. But again, God's a debtor to no one. Of, of his own accord, he's given us everything we have, the blessings that we have. And so the warning that, that we learn from what Jesus said to these guys is, you're those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, their wealth, their self-made religion, and their positions of power and prestige deceived them. They were deceived. And he said, but God knows your heart. God knew their hearts. Jesus knew their hearts. And there's that danger where money deceives us. There's that danger where power deceives us. There's that danger where pride deceives us. Our own sin deceives us. And if that's not enough to have to go against, the devil himself is the deceiver of the universe. And he seeks to deceive us. It is really important when we think about looking to the Lord for our provision and providing for us and the people we love that we are not self-deceived into thinking that somehow we've made We've made it happen. In the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus was asked to teach us how to pray by the disciples, of course, he said, you know, our Father who art in heaven, that's perspective. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's, that's God's will. He knows what's best, not us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. In that moment, Jesus ascribe the necessity of his disciples to look to our heavenly father for provision to be dependent upon the father for provision on a daily basis and to be honest again a good portion of the world's believers are when you look at someone like george Mueller, the great evangelist and uh, servant of the lord who lived there in bristol in the late through the 1800s he fed hundreds and even thousands of orphans daily in England, it became quite a testimony to the people of England, those who trusted in the Lord and believed in the Lord, the the Christian leaders of that day. And even someone like Charles Dickens, who did not confess faith in Christ, had comments about the life of George Mueller. Because George Mueller was known for a man of faith who lived 92 years. And in fact, when he, he was convinced Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime, But George Mueller depended daily on the Lord to feed hundreds and even thousands of orphans daily. And when you read the life and legacy of George Mueller of Bristol and how that man would get up at 4 a.m. with urgency and cry out to the Lord for provision, not just for him, but for all the kids he's providing, it was day after day of God's handprints, his blueprints, his carbon, if you will, using the buzzwords of the millennials. It was all there to see that God's provision was there and they could see it. And it's really in the place of brokenness with poverty in many cases where you see the hand of the Lord's provision. It's in those crooksables of your faith being tested when there's not enough money 
that you are pressed into the Lord, to the Heavenly Father, who is the provider. He's always a provider. And sometimes he holds with provision, so we will see our need to look to him for provision. And he can show himself strong on our behalf, whose hearts are loyal to him. The danger of many of the kings in the Old Testament in Judah is that they would cry out to the Lord when they were young, and he would provide deliverance for them against the Ethiopian army or against the Syrians or the Moabites. And then when they're older and they're established as kings and they had wealth and gold shields and, and, a, and a surplus, that they, when the next battle would come that would test their faith, instead of crying out to the Lord, they would use their resources to hire a foreign uh, army to come to their aid. The, they, so they'd hire the Egyptians to come to their aid against the Assyrians. They would hire uh, the Syrians to come to their aid against the northern kingdom. And God would say, did I not deliver you last time? Did I not show you, Ahaziah, that I, I delivered you? Why have you done this thing? And, and sending a prophet to even rebuke Ahaziah on the way to go to war with the northern kingdom as the king of Judah. And God said, did I not deliver you? Why would you do this thing? You cried out to me before. Why can't you cry to me now? When you study those kings, and most of them end poorly, it is because they remove the element of faith and daily dependency upon the Lord for their reign, their provision, and having his lordship over every facet of their life and the stewardship of their calling as a king. In fact, Josiah is probably the best one you get. What happened to Hezekiah? He showed off his wealth to the Babylonians. He had so much wealth. What happened to Solomon? Just so much wealth, just ridiculous wealth. His son Rehoboam trusted in that wealth and he squandered that wealth. David was smart. What did he do at the end of his life? What did David do at the end of his life? He took all of his wealth and he gave it to the building of the temple. He wanted to build the temple and God said, that's good, it's in your heart, but it's not for you. Solomon's going to build the temple because you're a man of blood. But you have a heart for me. And David gave all the wealth for Solomon to build the temple. No, no, not from the kings, not from the treasuries of taxes and big government. He gave from his own wealth. See, any king can redistribute what was taken in taxes. It takes a woman of God and a man of God to give from their own volitional will. That's what's honorable with the Lord. And David gave it, and he gave it to the Lord. He's like these people who step into eternity and set up their, you know, estates to benefit Harvest Crusade and, you know, different ministries. It's smart, Solomon write a generation later, you know, you get this wealth and then you, your son, you leave it to him and he squanders it. We've been better off to, to sow bountifully. That's why at the end of his life, Solomon said in, uh, I believe it's chapter 9 or 10 of Ecclesiastes, he said, listen, cast your bread upon many waters. Don't wake up in the morning and go like, man, the wind's just blowing the wrong way to, be, to sow today. Just cast your bread upon many waters. You don't know where it's going to come back from. It might come from this direction. It might come from that direction. Don't make excuses not to sow and be generous. Cast your bread upon many waters because I'll tell you what's going to happen. The days will grow old and evil and you'll say vanity, vanity. And all comes down to obeying God's commandments and fearing, fearing him. Cast your bread upon many waters and seek the Lord in your youth before the days grow old and evil and you take no pleasure in him. You know, we have various kids sometimes in the church that will start to put in an offering. And I just pray so fervently for those kids because I, I honor that and I value that so much. Let me tell you, we've as a church have handled, handled all kinds of different types of resources under different types of circumstances. But I'll tell you what gets, gets me as a pastor is when children put offerings to the Lord in this church and the other churches I've pastored. That sobers me up more than zeros on a check. 
that is such a precious offering because that means God's working on someone's life to help them understand that they should be sowers their whole life. And in losing their life, they find their life. And I pray for them. I pray for that. You can put me on record. Nothing sobers me up more as a pastor than a child's offering. Nothing. It's like the widow's might. To whom much is given, much is required. Me personally. I've learned to sow bountifully of my time, my energy, my emotions, my resources. I need to lead by example. Pastor Chuck, it was said near the end of his life that Almost everything he ever had, he gave back to the Lord. See, it's like when you're younger, you, you feel like you need it, like a safety net to be at ease. But when you get older, you realize, man, I need to get this in front of me and sow this bountifully. Two different perspectives. We do not want to be just self-justified in a religion of self-made religion. We want to have our hearts with God and we want to have our hearts completely with God. These guys were playing church and they were playing religion and they were lovers of money. What a tragedy. Don't let it be ours. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brand. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Joey Brand. Thanks for listening and God bless. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed.